Good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, uh, my name is Penny and I'm the pastor here. It is good to see you. Uh, welcome. We're glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. Um, so if you turn there in your Bible, uh, 1 Peter is near the end of the Bible, near uh, the book of Revelation. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. First, second, third John, you've still gone a little too far, um, but you'll, you'll find it. It's also printed in your order of service if you want to follow along there. And the last three weeks, uh, Peter has been focusing our attention on three different uh, areas of our life. How is it that we are supposed to live in regards to these different aspects of life? He's talked about uh, the the ways in which we are submit to submit to the authorities over us, the governing authorities. He talked about how we are to submit as servants to our masters in our uh, vocational context. Last week, he talked about the marriage relationship, the family. How is it that families are to live a distinctively Christian way, husbands to wives and wives to husbands? And this week, he's now uh, calling us, he's drawing our attention to focus on how is it that we are to live together as his church, but not only as his church, but how is it that we are also to live with the people around us, with our neighbors, even with our enemies? That's what he's taking up in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. So let's go ahead and follow along. Peter writes, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, uh, we are thankful for this portion of your word. We thank you that you have uh, given it to us and that it instructs us in the way in which we are to live. I pray that you would allow this morning for the words of my mouth and for the, all of our hearts to be pleasing to you so that you would be lifted high, that you would be exalted. Father, lead us in the way that we are to go. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the other night as my family and I were sitting at dinner, the three kids, Kat, myself, were sitting and we're engaging in our normal dinnertime conversation. Uh, what went well today? What was awful? What was amazing? What, what was something that happened that you hoped would never happen again? We kind of function in extremes. <laughs> it's kind of the way that we talk to one another. And so, so we shared different things, right? Every one of us updated a little bit. And, and that in the course of the conversation, there was a little bit of a lull that occurred. And in the midst of the lull, I interjected a question. I asked my kids, I want you to think about how you would answer this question. If someone came to you and said, what does it mean to be a penny legion? What would you say? If you were asked, what, what characterize, characterizes our family? What makes us unique? What makes us different from all the other families maybe around us, from your friends' families? What would you say? How would you answer that question? And so my children became very, uh, very quiet. They started to ponder, right, furrowed brows as they started to think and try to come up with the answer that they wanted to give. 
in the midst of the quiet, I, I just assumed that I was going to hear, well, to be a penny legion means we hate the Cubs and we love the Cardinals. Uh, that's not where they went, surprisingly. Uh, but, but instead, finally, in the midst of the quiet, one of them interjected and said, uh, to be a penny legion means we work in the yard. <laughs> uh, we work in the yard. And, uh, and they were right. <laughs> Over the last couple of weeks, that's what we've been doing. We've been working in the yard, a lot of working in the yard, making our backyard habitable. So, uh, so we work in the yard. That's a good answer. We're hard workers. We like to labor. We like to toil, right? We like dirt under our nails. We work. Another one of them said, uh, we, we laugh. We laugh, which I, I greatly appreciate that. I'm glad they didn't say we yell. <laughs> Sometimes that's true. Um, the, they said we laugh. We're people that laugh. Our family likes to enjoy time with one another. Another one of them got spiritual and said, we love Jesus. That's a great answer, right? What a wonderful answer. We love Jesus. And other answers were thrown out there, right? All of them were very good and described who we are as a way of saying this, this is what it means to be our family. This is what it means to be the penny legions. This is what characterizes us. I wonder how you'd answer that question. If we were to ask you, what does it mean in your family? What is your family characterized by? And not just your family, like what does it mean to be a Mosby or a Simerson or, or a Riggs? Like not, not just what, what that nuclear family is characterized by, by but, but what is this family characterized by? If someone asks you on the street, what, what is Christ the King all about? What characterizes us as a people? What distinguishes us from others? What, how would you answer that question? Or if you got big picture, if, if someone asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What characterizes what it means to be the people of God? Now, imagine if, if we asked that question of, of our neighbors, of our friends, we'd probably hear a whole host of things, right? Things that we would hopefully be able to affirm and, and appreciate. Things like, you know, Christians believe in what's true and good and right and, and are loving to neighbors. We'd probably also hear some stereotypes or caricatures or unfortunately not stereotypes and caricatures, things that we don't like, right? That Christians can sometimes be hard-hearted, can be antagonistic, can be angry, right? We'd probably hear a whole host of different things as to what it means to be the people of God, to be the church. Well, how would you respond to that? Instead of asking your neighbors, your friends, how would you answer that question? Maybe from our time in First Peter, you would say, well, the church is, is a people of exiles. We're a people who submit, and you'd be right. Those things are true. We've heard that already. But Peter's telling us specifically in this passage that the church is to be a people who bless. That we are to be a blessing. That's what he says in verse 9. He says, bless, for to this you are called. That you are to bless. That that's what the people of God are to be. That's what we are to do. Now, when we hear the word bless, if you're like me, you, may, you might run to the Psalms. Right? Because in the Psalms, we hear this language of bless come up again and again. The, the psalmist says that we are to bless the Lord, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. But that's not the kind of blessing that Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about blessing the Lord. He's talking about blessing others, blessing our neighbors and blessing one another. It's not focused specifically on our blessing of God, but, but that it is... Focus on our blessing of the church, of one another. So what does it mean to bless? Before we get into how we bless and to whom we are to bless, what does it mean? 
Well, to bless is simply seeking the good of another. It's seeking the good of another in its most basic form. And this seeking the good of another begins with the family of God. It begins with the family of God. That's what Peter says in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, these are five qualities all Christians should embody, all of you. Now, in the past few weeks, we we could have maybe tried to wiggle our way out, right? Uh, I'm not married. I don't have a husband or a wife, so those verses don't apply to me. (laughs) Or or I'm I'm retired. I don't have a a boss, or I'm not a servant of anyone, so those those verses don't really. We can try and wiggle. Don't do that, by the way, right? Like, Like the principles still apply to us, but this one we can't wiggle out of, right? He says all of you are to embody these virtues, are to embody these characteristics, these five qualities of what it means to be a Christian. Now, what's fascinating is the way in which Peter structures these five virtues. The New Testament theologian Tom Schreiner, he points out that the grammatical structure of this clause is that of a chiasm. Okay, a chiasm. That simply means that that the last clause, the last part of the clause and the first part, that they go together and that, that they subsist. They, uh, as they move on, that the, not only the first and the fifth, but the second and the fourth go together. They, they keep, uh, they're, they're complementary until they reach their peak in the middle. Okay, so if you look at it, unity of mind is the first virtue, humble of mind, right? Peter's talking about our mind, what goes on in our heads. But then he says in the second one that we're to have sympathy and a tender heart is the fourth one. Those go together. They complement one another, our emotional expression to one another. But they reach its pinnacle in the third one, brotherly love. That this is the, the height of these virtues. That this is the central quality. And this chiastic structure is created so that this middle one, this third one, would be given prominence. So that it would stand out. That all the others flow out of this one. That we are to have brotherly love. A love that's familial. You see that word that's used here for brotherly love, it's often used in regards to family obligations. But Peter isn't applying it to the nuclear family. Maybe that's what you thought of when I said we are to bless our family, parents and kids, brothers and sisters. Now, now that's true, right? Kids, please bless your parents today. Like, be a blessing to them. And not just today, like tomorrow. Like, more times than not, please, please bless them. That, that would be nice as a parent. I would, I would appreciate it. But that's not where Peter is directing his attention, It's not specifically to the nuclear family, it's to the family of God. All of you exude brotherly love to one another. And Peter's already used this familial language in 1 Peter, right? He's called us, this family, that that we are to be obedient children. He used that language in chapter 1. That we call God our Father collectively and that we are being built together into a spiritual home. See, we're a spiritual family with fathers and mothers in the faith, with brothers and sisters who are united together by our elder brother, Christ. And so as this family, we are to bless one another. We're to be a blessing to each other. But how? Well, by being 
united in mind, of having sympathy, of showing love, of being tenderhearted, of being humble in our minds. You see, these qualities are things that we are to express to each other. They're directed to one another, and these virtues, as we live them out, what they are doing is they are reinforcing the cohesion that our church community is to have over and against the world. That we are united together around these things. I mean, just think about it, unity of mind. We're not going to go through each of the five virtues that Peter describes, but think about unity of mind and how this reflects our cohesion. Literally, the phrase is like-mindedness, that we are to be like-minded. Now, this doesn't mean we agree on every single thing in this world, right? It doesn't mean that we are all in perfect uniformity in regards to everything, okay? In fact, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, as well as Romans, talks about disputable matters, that there are things in this world where we may disagree, that are not of essentialness in regards to our salvation. So we can disagree over things like um, how best we should educate our children. We can disagree over the types of uh, media we consume or who we are to vote for. That's not what Peter's talking about when he's talking about being like-minded. He's talking about things that are, are fundamental in regards to our salvation. We are united in the essentials that pertain to salvation, like Christ is the only way, like, like Jesus' bodily and historical resurrection, like the Trinity is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons of same substance, not like substance, not different substance, but equal in power and glory. That we are united together around these essential things, or as the theologian Richard Baxter put it, that in the essentials we have unity, in the non-essentials we have liberty, and in all things we have charity. So how do we do this? What does this look like in our lives? Well, first it means that we're not going to splinter and divide over non-essential issues. That the church is to be united around the essential, and so we, we, don't, we don't splinter around those things that aren't essential. But secondly, it means that we're not going to insist on our own ways. Or to put it positively, the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, he says that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is a beautiful vision. Isn't that a beautiful vision? I mean, to think about a people... A church in which everyone is seeking the good of the other. Could you imagine what it would be like if, if we were competing with one another to see who was more selfless? <laughs> what a beautiful idea that would be. What an, an enticing picture of what it would mean to be united around Christ and being willing to give of the places where where they're not essential, the things that maybe aren't that big of a deal. I mean, how different this would be than the world around us. It would be a contradiction to the self-consumed day in which we live in, wouldn't it? In which all that matters is my opinion, and all that matters is what I desire, and all that matters is what I think is right or wrong. No, we would be living as a contradiction in that where it's okay for me to die to myself and to give of my preferences for the sake of a brother or a sister. 
This is so different than the world. I mean, our world divides over all kinds of issues, right? I mean, we live in a splintered world, a factitious world. We, we, we live in a world where voting patterns and socioeconomic status and education neighborhoods divide us. But not the church. The church is to be the place where, where families that homeschool and public school and private school, we come together and we live together joyfully. The church is a place where Republican and Democrat and Independent can come and be united together around Christ. The church is where the wealthy and the poor, where children and elderly are all part of the same family. And we don't splinter, we don't divide, but we are united around Christ. That's what it means to be of like-minded, to have unity of mind. It means giving of ourselves for the sake of one another. The church we attended in South Carolina, when Kat and I were first married, um, I remember they, they were uh, working through uh, some changes that they were going to incorporate into the church. And one of the changes meant that they were going to do away with a program that they had been doing for the entire life of the church. And I remember the pastor telling me that in the discussions with the session, there was uh, an elderly man who had been on the session for, for decades and he loved this particular program. He loved it. But I, I remember the pastor telling me, he stood up and he said, if for the sake of others we need to do away with it, then we should. If for the sake of reaching our community, of loving brothers and sisters, of giving us more opportunities to minister to others with care and kindness, then be done with it. He loved it. He wanted it. But for the sake of others, he was willing to give. Friends, that's what it means to be united around Christ. That we'd be willing to die to even our own preferences. A place, the church is to be a place where we willingly have our desires and goals conform to the goals and purposes of God's church. And as we do this, we bless one another. But the blessing doesn't end with the family of God. It actually extends to our neighbors, that we are to bless our neighbors, and, and not just our neighbors, but, but actually our enemies. Now, this is an important thing that Peter's bringing up, because in all the discussion of exiles and foreigners and strangers, it'd be easy for us to think that as we live as foreigners in this world, as exiles, that the best way to live this way, to live as a distinct people, is to retreat, right? So we have this little holy huddle, a Christian enclave in which all we interact with are other Christians and, and we only do business with Christian businessmen and we have no interaction with the world, that, that that's the best way we can live as exiles. <laughs> but that's not what Peter says. That's not what he tells us, right? The, the phrase, good fences make good neighbors, <laughs> it doesn't apply to the people of God. No, we're not to be simply a blessing to those in our family, but those outside our family as well. We're supposed to be a blessing even to our enemies. And how are we to bless our enemies? Well, first, it's through restraint. That's what Peter says in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So we've heard that we're going to live as exiles, and as we live as exiles, we will face opposition. And when opposition comes... How are we going to live? Well, when evils perpetrate against us, when we're reviled, when we're slandered, 
We don't return in kind. No, we, we live with restraint. And to help us understand this principle, David, or excuse me, Peter invokes David. He quotes Psalm 34. That's what verses 10 through 12 are. It's a quotation from Psalm 34, which is a psalm of David. And David is a fitting, a perfect example of restraint in the face of evil. Right? We know the story of David and Saul. Saul is the king over Israel, and David is raised up. Saul has rejected the Lord, and so God has rejected him. And so David is raised up. He's anointed as the next king. And, and at first, Saul, you know, he, he's kind of okay with David. He's got a pretty voice, so he has him sing for him, and that's kind of nice. He brings him into the court. But then after a while, David's success becomes too much for Saul, right? He starts getting jealous. People are celebrating David more than Saul. Saul killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And so how does Saul respond? He doesn't think, oh, this is great transition planning, right? My next guy is ready. He's like, I better put an end to this. And so he tries to kill David, right? He throws a spear at him, right? He has his army chasing after him. And so what does David do in response? Well, his men said, David, you need to kill him. In fact, twice there were instances in which David snuck up on Saul and he could have easily put an end to all this. Once in a cave, once while Saul was sleeping. But do you remember why David snuck up on him? He snuck up on him so he could then say to Saul, look, I could have killed you and I didn't. I'm not going to return your evil with evil. That's what David does. He's the perfect example of restraint in the face of evil. He didn't bring judgment upon Saul because David knew that God would bring that judgment. David knew that God would oppose the wicked. That's what we read in verse 12. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, the restraint in the face of evil is actually a demonstration of faith. Faith that God will bring the justice. God will bring the judgment. It's an expression of faith that, that we need not Take vengeance into our own hands, but vengeance is the Lord's. That's what God declares. It's an expression of faith. But listen, in saying this, this doesn't mean that the church is silent in regards to issues of justice. Okay, because maybe that's where you might be going in your head, that, that we should never talk about those sorts of things, that we should simply ignore them. That's it's not what the Bible tells us. In fact, the Bible is very clear that on issues of justice or defending the weak or speaking for those who have no voice at the church is called to have that prophetic voice. In fact, in verse 11, Peter says, quoting David, that we are to turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. And so sometimes that means calling evil evil and saying injustice is what it is. It is unjust. That we are to seek peace and pursue what is good. That we are to be a voice for the voiceless and defend the weak. But when we are reviled, when evil is done against us, particularly for doing good, that is when we show restraint. We stand up for the weak and the needy and the poor and those who are hurting. But we don't return evil for evil. But Peter doesn't stop there. Blessing doesn't end with restraint, as though we simply sit in this kind of neutral silence. 
He says that blessing, to bless our enemies, means that we seek their good. That we do them good. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. Bless those who have done evil against you. Bless those who slander your good name. To bless those who have done evil means to seek their good. Now, I have to acknowledge, like, this, this is very radical, isn't it? I mean, like, we don't go this, in this direction naturally, right? I mean, in, in our world, and, and not just in our world, but in our hearts and in our minds and with our words and with our hands, when, when uh, we encounter reviling or slander, what do we want to do? We want to retaliate, and we want to seek revenge, and we want to put that other person in their place. And even when it's not us that have been reviled, but we're simply annoyed or agitated, what we do, we go online and we cast uh, accusatory grenades and disparaging comments, but bless? No, that's not what we do. It's not what I do. I run through in my head all those things I wish I would have said. Or man, when, when that conversation comes up again, what I am going to say? I retaliate. And I want revenge. Instead of responding to criticism or ill treatment with ill, we bless. I mean, who does this? Do you know who's supposed to do this? The people of God. The church. That's who's supposed to do this. I mean, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That we are to love and to do good, to pray for, to bless. To bless is, it's not just seeking their good, but it's actually invoking and asking for God's favor to be proclaimed upon them. I mean, at the end of every service, right, I, I declare the benediction. It is God's blessing that God would show you favor, that his blessing would come upon you. That is what we are called to do, that we are to ask for God's favor to come upon even those who hate us. This reminds me of a scene in Victor Hugo's classic Les Mis. There's a scene where Jean Valjean He's this uh, reformed criminal. He's become the, the mayor of a small French city. He's, he's in disguise. No one knows that he's a criminal because if he was, he could never be mayor. He's the mayor, and, and this means he has final authority when it comes to the law. He's the one who's supposed to uphold it and to administer it. And there's this scene where Fantine, this woman who was working in Valjean's factory, has been fired. And, and in response to this, her losing of her job, she has to take to illicit living. Uh, she becomes a prostitute in order to feed her child. And there's these men who find her in the street and they, they treat her poorly and they ruin her dress. And in response, Fantine uh, responds to them in, in violence. He, she strikes them and, and pushes against them. And, and Javert, who is the police inspector, sees this, and so she, he brings her in and hears her case and sentences her to six months in prison. He doesn't care that Fantine's daughter will, will starve. He doesn't care that, 
that Fantine was provoked, he upholds the law. He brings justice. Now Valjean comes into the room and he hears the end of this. He hears how the sentence has been administered and, and, and he stands before them and Fantine looks up and sees Valjean and in her anger she spits in his face and curses him. Those are two crimes that should have brought a greater sentence. But Valjean wipes the spit from his face and he orders her to be released. And everyone in the room is shocked. Fantine is beside herself. Javert is furious. He says to Valjean, you are the personification of order, of morality, of government. You don't have the right to forgive her for debasing you. And Valjean says, I have the authority. She is free to go. He looks at Fantine and says, you are free to go. A crime had been committed against him and he didn't respond in kind. He responded with blessing. He basically said, you have committed a crime and you are deserving of punishment. But you are free to go. He used his power and his morality for the sake of one who had committed a crime against him. And friends, that's exactly what Christ has done. That's exactly what Jesus has done. You see, he doesn't just call us to a life of love and doing good and praying for and blessing our enemies. He did it himself. I mean, think about the slanderous things that were thrown at Jesus. You're a blasphemer, a glutton, a drunkard, a lawbreaker, none of which were true. A blasphemer? He was God incarnate. A lawbreaker? He kept the law perfectly. And yet he was mocked and slandered. And what did he do in the face of this mocking? He endured. When he was threatened, he persevered. And when he was murdered, he blessed. Because on the cross, as he was dying and as his accusers mocked him, what did he pray? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive his enemies. Jesus asked for blessing to fall upon those who had killed him. For his enemies, for us. And friends, it's because we are recipients of this otherworldly expression of blessing that this now becomes our call. That we become a people who bless one another, but also we bless our neighbors and those who revile us and even our enemies. Because Christ has blessed us. Let's pray. Our God, our King, we do thank you that you, Lord Jesus, you did not leave us in our sin or our despair. You did not leave us as your enemies, but even when we were in rebellion against you, you sought our good. When we were undeserving of your grace, you gave it. When we were far from you, and rejecting your law, you kept it on our behalf. And so we praise you, and we thank you, and ask that you would strengthen and equip us to live out the calling that you have called us to, to live in a way that reflects your grace and your mercy to this world, that we would live as a contradiction to the world around us, blessing one another and blessing our neighbor and our enemies. Father, work in us, help us, strengthen us to do it so that your name would be made much of 
that your name would be made great and that we would live as your people. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen.